Madness is here. Say goodbye to busted brackets because FanDuel lets you bet on every game of the tournament. Whether you're betting on a big upset or a one seed, it's time to go dancing on America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first $5 bet wins on FanDuel. That's 200 bucks to use on point spreads, money lines. You can even pick who's going to win it all. Just visit FanDuel.com slash on three and bet on college hoops until they cut down the nets. Must be 21 and older and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus. Bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. Dot com in Kansas, one eight seven 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 zero stop in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit one eight hundred gambler.net in West Virginia or call one eight hundred five two two four seven zero zero in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gambling helpline ma.org or call eight hundred three two seven fifty fifty four twenty four seven support in Massachusetts or call one eight seven seven eight hope. NY or text Hope NY in New York. Welcome to Andy Staples on three, and congratulations to Oregon State and Washington State for yet another win. Both schools doing very well this football season already. Washington State had the big win against Wisconsin over the weekend, but a big win for both schools, the remaining Pac 12 schools, mind you. In court on Monday, a judge granted a temporary restraining order, said the Pac-12 cannot hold any executive board meetings until all of the situation with Oregon State, Washington State, and their case is worked out. What that means essentially is the other Pac-12 schools that are leaving can't hold meetings that allow them to, oh, I don't know, vote some ways that maybe get them some money from the Pac-12 to help them leave the conference and do the things they have to do to, to move to the Big Ten or the Big 12. And Oregon State, Washington says, no, 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 no. We're, we're still here. We're the two-pack. We will be in control of this thing. They are, they, they are the captains now. And I, I love it. I love it. Basically, they are in control of everything. They can't have board meetings. The league can conduct normal business provided – all of the schools vote unanimously in writing for whatever happens. So this way they can keep the lights on at the office and keep paying the employees, all that stuff. But schools that are on the way out cannot try to pillage the Pac-12's reserves to help themselves. You know, Oregon State and Washington State, they're trying to find a way to keep all that because they would like to eventually reconstitute the conference. Again, selfishly, 
because it would be funny and awesome. I hope they go as a two-team conference next year and they have a championship game that is just those two teams. It will be the one-game conference season and the game will be the championship game. Or maybe they play two. Maybe they play a regular season game and championship game week and they play each other again. How awesome would that be? They could play a home-and-home if they wanted to do it that way. But however it works out, the ones that got left behind did not get screwed again, at least for a little while. So Oregon State, Washington State, basically in control of the Pac-12 right now. They're the captains now. And we'll see what happens from here on. But I'm glad the judge made sure that the, the schools that have been treated pretty badly so far finally get their day. And we'll see. But on the field, they're doing all right, too. So congratulations to Oregon State and Washington State. And I realize this is a football show, and I promise we will get to football stuff. It's a Dear Andy show. You asked some great questions. You, you got me ranking the top five by resume alone, which if we put that in a graphic, I guarantee it will piss people off. Uh, you, you got lots of good Deion Sanders questions. Obviously, you have questions about Michigan State. Graham Couch of the Lansing State Journal will be on very shortly to help answer some of those questions. He's been covering the Spartans for a long, long time. One more piece of news before we get to Graham Couch, though, North Carolina, their board of trustees had a meeting today. I know it's all meetings and court hearings. That's, that's how we do it. But they had a meeting. It was an executive session, so we didn't get to see anything that was going on. But essentially, it was the trustees and Mac Brown and athletic director Bubba Cunningham meeting to figure out what kind of options receiver Tez Walker has to challenge the NCAA's ruling that he's not eligible to play this season. Remember, Tez Walker transferred from Kent State. It was his second transfer, which requires him to get a waiver. And second transfer is an undergrad, I point out, that requires him to get a waiver. The extenuating circumstance in this case is the first school he went to was North Carolina Central. They did not play a 2020 football season. They were then supposed to play 2021 spring. They didn't. Fall of 2022 was looking in doubt, and that's when Tez Walker transferred to Kent State. So they are saying that it's not the same situation as these other ones. And oh, by the way, Tez Walker was enrolled before the NCAA guidance changed on how to handle that waiver process. So they feel like Tez still has a case, and the question is, how do they help him? And it's, it's really interesting. They've, they've brought in outside counsel. In a lot of these cases, the athlete sues the NCAA, and they also have to sue the school, which as a member of the NCAA helped make the rule that is causing the problem. So it will be very intriguing to see if, as Luke DeCock, the, the columnist of the Raleigh News and Observer pointed out, does, does North Carolina have to figure out how to sue itself in this case? But it sounds like they're trying to make sure all the options are on the table for Tez Walker at this point. We'll see where they go from here. But long meeting about that on Monday. They talked about it and the result of it, maybe a lawsuit coming against the NCAA. And this is one of those that, that those of us who watch the NCAA have been wanting to see for a while. What, what happens if somebody challenges these transfer rules? There was a case a few years ago where somebody challenged them and the NCAA won, but it might be that in a different venue, different jurisdiction, it happens differently. So it, especially as the climate changes relative to how people see the NCAA, how people see the players, how people see the schools. So 
we will find out what happens with that Tez Walker situation, but it is not necessarily over yet with him being denied that waiver last week. In other news on Monday, Mel Tucker released a statement through his attorney telling his side of the story in the case that got him suspended and it looks like it's probably going to cost him his job at Michigan State. In a few minutes, you're going to hear from Graham Couch, the Lansing State Journal. We didn't ask him about this statement because we didn't have it yet when we talked to Graham, but let's talk about the statement now. It minces no words at the beginning. Brenda Tracy's allegations of harassment are completely false, reads the statement from Mel Tucker through his attorney. And he then goes on to explain how they met and basically says that the the investigation found they had, quote unquote, a personal relationship and that they shared, quote unquote, deeply personal and private information with each other. Basically, what Mel Tucker seems to be describing is an emotional affair. Now, Mel Tucker in the in the statement says he'd been estranged from his wife for a while and that that wasn't the marriage was not salvageable at that point, uh, but he was married at the time. He does say the the phone call that we talked about that the USA Today story describes in detail uh, happened, that what happened during the phone call happened. He admitted that to the investigators. Uh, he says, while I am saddened by Miss Tracy's disclosure of the sensitive nature of this call, let me be perfectly clear. It was an entirely mutual private event between two adults living at opposite ends of the country. She initiated the discussion that night, sent me a provocative picture of the two of us together, suggested what she may look like without clothes, and never once during the 36 minutes did she object in any manner, much less hang up the phone. And he then says, it was not till four months later, after the next presentation for Brenda Tracy to the Michigan State football team, which was you know her paid gig, was postponed. And after he complained that she and her assistant were spreading rumors about Mel Tucker's marriage, that she told anyone about it. He said she also sent him a happy Father's Day text two months after that call. He says that the hearing scheduled for October 5th and 6th is quote-unquote ridiculously flawed and not designed to arrive at the truth. So... What you have here is Mel Tucker telling his side of the story. What's interesting about this is the USA Today story did include almost all of this. Mel Tucker mentions in his statement that uh, he gave Brenda Tracy a, a, an expensive pair of shoes, that he Venmoed her $200, uh, that he made a, a donation in his own name to her charity. And that's all in the, the USA Today story as well. The, the, this is not necessarily different information it's presented in a slightly different way but not different one of the key lines in here is this one the investigation has not been fair or unbiased i can only conclude that there is an ulterior motive designed to terminate my contract based on some other factor such as a desire to avoid any nasser taint or my race or gender nasser would be larry nasser who was the doctor at michigan state who was found to have been molesting his patients for years and Basically, the people in charge at the time covered it up and, and didn't investigate properly and didn't handle it when people were trying to, to report Larry Nasser. So that has been hanging over Michigan State for years. Uh, I would imagine that Mel Tucker is probably right. There are probably quite a few people at Michigan State who do have the ulterior motive to terminate his contract because of this. I don't necessarily think it's because of Larry Nasser or of anybody's race or gender. I think it's because they owe him about $80 million guaranteed, and he's not winning at the level or recruiting at the level that they thought he was going to. So 
if we're going to really just say it here, that's why. Now, if you're Mel Tucker, you're going to argue that that's wrong. You're going to argue that this is a private situation. This is his private life. This is not him engaging in any sort of illegal activity or anything that would, would violate his contract. And the Michigan State's going to come and argue that it does violate his contract because it brought ridicule upon the university or because he was having a relationship with the university vendor. However they want to frame it, that's what they're going to try to do. So this is going to get fought out for a while. I don't think Mel Tucker's coaching Michigan State anymore. You're going to hear from Graham. He'll explain why he came to that conclusion very quickly. But I would imagine that there's still a lot of fight left here because there is a ton of money at stake. If you're Mel Tucker, you're going to keep fighting for it. Even if this hearing goes against him and they fire him for cause, my guess is his attorney comes back and sues. The other option is they can settle right now between now and the hearing where they can settle anytime for a set dollar amount that isn't the full amount. And he says, okay, I'm going to drop this. I'll take the money. That probably is the cleanest solution to this. But if you're Michigan State and you feel like you've got a case and you can do it without paying him, they're going to go through with the case. But Mel Tucker has said his piece now that, that he believes the investigation's a sham and that it is designed to railroad him. So we will see what happens. I don't know that it changes much because again, none of this stuff was new information. All of this was in the USA Today report, which drew from the investigative report that was turned in to Michigan State that will be used in this hearing in October. So I don't know how much it changes anything. It's Mel Tucker's version of it, but it's weird because usually in cases like this, you get all sorts of new information when one when another person gives their side, but because Mel Tucker had given his side in the investigation, we'd already seen all that. So I don't know if it changes anything. This is basically the same information that Michigan State's leaders had when they suspended Mel Tucker. So we will find out what happens from this point forward, but my guess is still Mel Tucker has coached his last game at Michigan State. The only question is whether they're going to have to pay him or not. We'll be right back with Graham Couch. We welcome in Graham Couch from the Lansing State Journal. And Graham, you've covered Michigan State for a long time. You've, you've covered a lot of weird things. How strange has this Mel Tucker situation been? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's up there. Um, you know, Michigan State's had uh, some not great things go on for a while uh, in, in different, you know, different eras and different years. And uh, But this is, you know, if you had told me a month ago the idea that Mel Tucker wouldn't be coaching week three and would likely be done as, uh, I think almost certainly done as Michigan State's coach, I would have bet you just about anything. I would have let you tattoo something on my forehead. I would have taken that bet. So you, you wrote very quickly once the USA Today story came out that you thought this was the end for Mel Tucker. And what was it that, about that story that said, okay, there's no path forward here? A couple things. One, that first of all, I, based on the story, I think the, the Title IX findings when they go through the hearing is, is going to find against him. Now, even if it doesn't, I, I think there's enough there that he's been in, in – um, breach of contract or at least given them cause to fire him without owing him, you know, the nearly 80 million, I think that's still left on that 
that contract uh, just based on some of the language in the deal about bringing embarrassment and, and, and to the university. Uh, this is that. This is, you know, this is a um, and, and so I think even what he's admitted now would would, would do that. And and it's just, um, you know, this is a, a at Michigan State. You cannot I'm not sure you survive this anywhere, but at MSU that has tried so hard to um, improve itself, distance itself, uh, recapture a reputation that isn't uh, doesn't have so much to do with how it's handled sexual assault and um, Title IX miscues and all th- other things like that. You, you're just not going to come out of this unscathed. And, and and then there's you know the fact that that I don't think they're as sure about him as they were before. And and there's certainly a way out now as well. How much is that? That this is a way out of that contract? Because I, I would imagine probably last season there was already some buyer's remorse. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a small part. I think any, I think any coach under any contract, if he was making a third of what he was making, and, and they had won, you know, nine games last year, I think this would still be it, given the dynamics at the university and just the lack of tolerance and you can see it from MSU's fan base. Like people are just tired of it. They're sick of it. There's nobody, very few people sticking up for the idea of Mel Tucker or the, the, the idea of him coming back or anything like that. Um, but you know, it, it, as always people's perception of you uh, changes with winning and, and losing. I do think though, there were a, enough people before this who were still hopeful uh, the way they'd recruited um, that, you know, his, his real first recruiting class was only sophomores and redshirt freshmen. And um, I think a lot of people still had high hopes for the era, but uh, yeah, that that's over now. We'll be right back with more from Graham Couch, but first I want to tell you about game time. If you're looking for a ticket to a game this week or maybe a concert or a comedy show this week, go to game time, download the app, find your venue, find your concert, find your game. You know, there's a lot of good college football games. Actually, this week, you know, we're saying the schedule doesn't look all that great, but that's when all the crazy stuff happens, and you can probably get a good deal on some of these tickets. The best deals are at game time. The best deals on the last-minute seats are at game time, and it is so easy. You just flick your way through the app, find your town, find your team, search either way, click on the event, click on the ticket, a picture comes up, you're seeing the stadium. That's not a generic picture of the stadium. That is the view you get from that seat that you'd be buying. And at that point, it's a couple more taps, and that ticket is yours. Game time takes all the stress out of it. It's the easiest way to handle last-minute ticket buying. And if you use the code STAPLES right now, you get $20 off your first purchase. So that's code STAPLES for $20 off your first purchase. Download the Game Time app, find that game you want to go to, and get that ticket. It's that easy. It'll take you a few seconds, stress-free, and you're in there. Game time. Code staples, $20 off your first purchase. So I'm curious because we saw some stuff coming out last night from, from their PR people that Teresa Woodruff, the president, Alan Holler, the, the AD, did not know the specifics of this case until the USA Today story dropped. And the AD was asked specifically about what changed. Why did you suspend him today versus suspending him in July when the report was done or, or in March after he was interviewed? Why didn't they just say we can't 
be told what's going on. I, th that makes no sense to me because it makes it look like they were trying to cover it up, even if they weren't. Yeah, no, they, they really they really fumbled uh, yesterday. I, it, I thought it was a great opportunity, a, a missed opportunity to have people really believe and, and that that you've handled this competently and appropriately. And um, and the, the interim president even tried to sell that, right? This concept that it's a new MSU and all this. And then you take three questions. And I mean, what is that? And, and it was only to their detriment, too, because even if you can't say a ton, and it shouldn't have just been Alan Haller talking. He did not have a great day up there. Uh, but the, the, the interim president should have been available for questions then as well. But, uh, you know, even if you can't say a ton, you can say, I, I can't answer. You can keep answering questions until you run into things that give insight. Because there were, there were nuts and bolts basics that would have gotten uh, answered, including that, including the idea that they didn't know anything. And they should have been sort of screaming that from the mountaintops. Or, you know, the idea that they were aware in December, but didn't really know the contact, contents of anything until Sunday. That's really important. And that was not explained in that opportunity. And so it, you wind up with a day of, of coverage where people are doubting you and, and you're, you're, you know, and some of that stuff was, you're right, was clarified. And, you know, but I had to do the same thing. Right? I had to reach out to their folks last night and get clarity on a number of things that I wondered about. And, and I think they, under, as late as they were getting back to people last night, I think they understood that they had dropped the ball. Yeah, it's amazing to me because I've, I've covered situations involving Title IX investigations at other schools and they've made it very clear that this, the superiors of the person accused sometimes are not allowed to be in the loop because they're worried about somebody maybe coming in and meddling with the investigation, that sort of thing. But yeah, when, when Alan Haller is asked what changed between July and now, all he has to say is, well, I wasn't allowed to know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just don't get that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, they didn't have all the information. I mean, what did change, too, is basically, you know, the, the U.S. Day Today report come, came out. And, and a couple things with that. Number one, they now have all the information. Number yeah. two, Brenda Tracy is sort of given her blessing at that point to have her identity known, right? You're no longer protecting a name. And so there are a couple things that, that changed in that moment. And I don't think it's, you know, but they did a very poor job of explaining uh why they you know because initially people are like well if they knew in december why did why wasn't he suspended in december if the findings were submitted in in the end of july why does he continue on and and um you know they just they they didn't explain it well so it, it's it's interesting too because in in these cases we often don't get to see both sides of the story right away but because they had the entire investigative report in that usa today story you you could see mel tucker's side of it where he said this was consensual and that you have other things like all of the phone calls between the two of them and the fact that both of them deleted their text message. But what I keep coming back to, and I think you said this earlier, Graham, what he's already admitted to, like the agreed upon facts are probably already enough. It feels like. Yeah. I mean, she was a vendor of the school. He brought her in, you know, I mean, she was paid by the school to come in and, you know, sort of the, the irony of it is to speak to his team about, avoiding behavior like this um and you know it, it it's but the big thing is right this is any em, employer in their work situation where somebody is a subordinate or somebody is a contractor you leave yourself open to uh to this situation he has admitted a um behavior that 
Michigan State is not going to um, is not going to is not going to allow. And the other the other problem is then you look at why he canceled her coming back to campus, right? And it's because it of this, which is exactly why the, the companies don't allow for these relationships. And um, yeah, I mean he's and and at this point, Michigan's I don't know how you come back and you. Uh, get donor support. I don't know how you come back and, you know, get a recruit and, and get the team all on your side. There's just, there's just no chance he's going to continue. So they, they bring in Harlan or they elevate Harlan Barnett to be the interim head coach. They bring back Mark D'Antonio to be a, you know associate head coach kind of sounding board for Harlan Barnett. What kind of opportunity is this for a guy who he was there for basically the entirety of the D'Antonio era He's become almost an institution at Michigan State as an assistant. He was brought back by Mel Tucker. Um, what, what's what's it like for him? And then how do the players feel about playing for him? Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, really I haven't got a sense of the players yet on that. For him, though, it, it's – I mean, this is his – I think his best chance in some ways. He's always wanted this. He's wanted to be a head coach. Um, I believe that when he went to Florida State to be the defensive coordinator – the hope from Mark D'Antonio and him was that it would go well down there. And then when Mark D'Antonio retired, he would be a natural heir apparent and it didn't go well down there. And so he wasn't really a, a serious candidate for that. Uh, but it, it, you know, it, I still think it's way more than likely that they wind up going outside the program at, at mm -hmm. the end of this year, but it's a chance. It's not just one game or two games. It, it's 10. And it's a team that could go a lot of different ways and you're just going to have to deal with a lot of challenges. And if it goes well, if the vibe stays good, if they look like they're a program that continues to improve and is headed somewhere under this coaching staff, there's an argument that maybe this is the guy to lead this coaching staff and, and, and continue forward with. So it's, it's a, it's a tremendous opportunity for him. It's going to be, it's going to be a hard season though. It's hard to tell based on the two opponents they've played, but does it feel like they were an improved group over last year? Yes, defensively, especially. I mean, I think that's where, you know, and again, they haven't faced a quarterback who can throw the ball forward. Yet, will this so week. Be a, yeah, that changes with Michael Penix. Um, but uh, defensively, they look like a, a more sound group, a group that tackles better in space, that's better up front. Uh, Noah Kim looks like a guy who's, you know, has a chance to at least be a, a solid quarterback. He got in a real groove, 15 straight completions last week. Again, it's against Richmond. So what do you know? But I, you know, I, I don't think, uh, I, I, they got a number of young receivers that they're high on I, the offensive line. We'll see, but I, I think it has a chance to be a uh, 500 or better team. If they can maintain focus and resolve, if when Mel Tucker's fired and the idea of the transfer portal comes to, if, you know, if the team stays together, if they deal with, there are going to be some hiccups. They're going to face teams better than them that are going to beat them. Um, if they can deal with all that and they can be focused week in and week out, I think they have a chance at a decent season. Graham Couch, I know you got a lot of news to cover and, and a lot more to do this week. So thank you so much for your time. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much to Graham Couch. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Now, 
It's time for me to answer your questions. That's right. It's Dear Andy. And now it's time for me to answer your questions. That's right. It's Dear Andy. And we got a bunch of good ones. One particular person's name keeps popping up a lot in this, but his name keeps popping up a lot this entire season. So we will start with our friend Nathan, who every week he sends in a question from Jerusalem. You're on America. You can send in questions too. Don't let Nathan hog all the spotlight, but Nathan does ask great questions. Dear Andy, to avoid thinking about how much my team stinks this year, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about this upcoming head coaching carousel, because I have two questions about it. First off, is Mike Elko the perfect future Northwestern coach? I think he is. Secondly, if Dion, that's a that's a crazy world, Dion goes six and six this year. Could he be Florida's head coach next year? How fast will D- could Dion leave Colorado if he is actually as good as these first two weeks have seemed? We will leave Dion for a second. We'll let everybody marinate on that. We'll start with Mike Elko. I sure he'd make a good Northwestern coach, but I think Mike Elko would make a good anybody coach. I don't think it matters where he is. Yes, he's having success at Duke. Similar profile to Northwestern. Northwestern would be the higher paying version of that job. But I don't know that you limit Mike Elko to just that type of job. I mean, Mike Elko was the defensive coordinator at Texas A&M. He was the defensive coordinator at Notre Dame. Uh, He obviously worked with Dave Clawson a lot uh, at various stops, which is why he has the profile of being the guy who'd be good at, at those high academic type schools. But... I mean, let's say Texas A&M suddenly decided to make a change. Wouldn't Mike Elko be somebody you'd want to talk to at that point? He had success as the defensive coordinator there. You know, Michigan State, they're going to have an opening. Wouldn't you want to talk to Mike Elko? I don't think it's a, a limitation to just that type of job. He, he can get anything, and he might be at the top of everybody's list if Duke keeps playing as well as we've seen so far in Mike Elko's tenure, because he won nine games last year. We came into the season going, Ooh, boy, that schedule looks really hard. Don't know how they can handle that. And then all they do is thump Clemson the first week, 28-7. So if he has a good season at Duke, I, I would imagine he's the top of everybody's board. So I, I think Northwestern would have to get in line at that point. I, I don't think they'll be at the top of the list. Now, let's move on to the Dion one. Dion, I don't want to take Dion away from Colorado after a year. Let these people have some nice things. And also, well, we'll see how things go as, as people get madder and madder about the Tez Walker situation at, at North Carolina. But at the moment, it is very hard to transfer twice as an undergrad and play immediately. So my guess is Dion would not leave after this season at Colorado because he cannot bring the Louis luggage with him. You know, Travis Hunter has another year in college after this. He can't go to the NFL until the 2025 draft. But he he's gonna he's already transferred once, so he's probably going to have to play that at Colorado. So if you're Dion, no, no, you stay at Colorado with this group of players. And honestly, you see what you can do because, remember, they're going to have another transfer portal cycle to get even better players. They're going to have the high school recruiting cycle, and they're getting looks from very good players. 
they could potentially flip some really good class of 2024 players. And look, you're seeing what Dylan Edwards is doing as a true freshman. They're, they're going to have availability to play still bit because they did flip this roster fa so fast. They do still probably have depth issues they need to correct. There will be playing time. So if you're a top 2024 recruit and Dion comes trying to flip you, you're probably going to listen if they're winning. And, you know, look, I think my modest expectations for Colorado this season were way underestimating them. I said, if you win four or five games, build the man a statue. They're going to win four or five games. They're probably going to be bowl eligible. We'll see when they play Oregon and USC really where they are and where we, we can, we should be able to figure out where they're going to end up at that point. But if they're competitive against Oregon and USC, then we are potentially looking at a, an eight, nine win season maybe. And yeah, everybody in the world is going to want Dion. But also I think Dion can be very picky. One, two, he wants to keep those players that he's got. He wants to keep coaching them. Three, there might be a little loyalty to Colorado as the one that wanted him because there are a lot of jobs open. Dion was on the market, clearly. Colorado was the one that went after him. So, and I know everybody said, well, that doesn't matter in coaching. It matters when there are other factors like the you can't take Travis Hunter and Shador with you probably factor. So that's the, the piece that I think keeps Dion there one more year. Uh, the Florida thing, guys, it's still a $31 million buyout on Billy Napier. I know, I know a lot of people are out on him, but I'm betting they're going to give him every chance to get that turned around. And let's, we'll, we'll hold off on that one. But there will be other jobs. As we've mentioned, Michigan State's going to open. They're going to, West Virginia's probably going to open. Yeah, obviously, that's not the, the kind of thing Dion's going to be going for. If Dion leaves Colorado, whenever that is, you got to think it's an SEC or Big Ten job, that it's a, a top of the top, a team that can compete for national titles if you have the right roster. Like that's that's the job he can leave for now. And I know you, you say, oh, it's it's only been two weeks. It's it's too premature. I don't think it's premature to say that. I think given what we've seen at Jackson State and in the first couple weeks at Colorado, this is a guy who can acquire talent, motivate, organize, and hire a good staff. You just named all the all the requirements to be a good head coach. Anywhere, any level. He's got that. He can acquire talent at the highest level. That is the single hardest thing to do. That is what separates Nick Saban, Kirby Smart, those types of coaches. They acquire talent at the highest level. Now, the ones who win national titles like Nick Saban and Kirby Smart develop it at the highest level too. We'll see with Dion, but all I can see so far is that he's at Jackson State and at Colorado is he's put his best athletes in position to be the best players and they have delivered. So that suggests to me that he's developing just fine. And again, this is a guy who played 14 years in the NFL. He knows what NFL teams are looking for. If he doesn't know or he feels like he's not sure, he can call a million people and ask. And they will give him good advice. So I, I'm not ready to, to take Dion away from Colorado yet. Colorado, I, I, I'm sorry that everybody keeps bringing this up. I would like you guys to be able to enjoy this. I think you can. I, I think for at least 
one more year after this one, you're going to be able to enjoy this. So I will, I will stop with that because it's fascinating to see where we're at with Dion. If he keeps winning, there is no limit to what schools would want to have him. There, there's no limit to where he could go. It's just, it's one of those places that if you can win with this roster, the way he's doing it, and you can acquire talent the way he's acquiring it, everybody's going to want you. And so Colorado will have to work to keep him. And he'll have to decide, can I win a national title at Colorado? Do I want to stay here? Or do I want to try to find somewhere where I can win a national title? But again, I don't think that's a post-2023 question. I think it's a post-2024 question. So enjoy this for now. Next question comes from Hancock at Call Me Biscuits on X. After week two, can we get a top five resume ranking? I love it. I love it. So when I was an AP poll voter, I followed the, the advice of the great Doug Lemery. And, and Doug covers Ohio State. He does daily podcasts now on Ohio State. As an AP poll voter, Doug's philosophy was your preseason polls, your guesses, but then once the season starts, you're only ranking based on what has happened so far this season. And I think it's a really good way to do it. It's still not entirely foolproof because you have teams that don't play good games like Georgia and Michigan so far this year where you can't really evaluate anything, but you're pretty sure they're really good. So what, you know, where do you put them? But I'm going to do a pure resume ranking. And so you're going to see this and you're going to go, well, this is dumb. This was made clearly to piss me off. No, I am ranking based on what has happened this season. And as you'll see, because of the way teams have played their game so far, it's almost impossible. And so it's destined to be wrong. It'll like, if you go back in week 12 and look at this, you're going to laugh at it. But I actually think it's a pretty good way to do it because you go as the teams go, you move people up as they play better. You move them down as they play worse. You, you eliminate assumptions. So I don't think it's a bad way to vote. I don't think it's a bad way to rank teams. So let it, let's start at number five. And, and I'll say also under consideration that I didn't put in the top five, Washington State, they won against Colorado State resoundingly. Then they beat Wisconsin at home. I think that's a, that's a pretty good couple of wins there for Washington State. Colorado, they just missed it. If we were, if we knew what TCU was going to be, I think that I'd probably have them in there. Uh, I'm not sure how good Nebraska is going to be either, but Colorado does have two power five wins right now. So it, it's entirely possible that they are one of the best five so far, but I would, I just, I'm just not sure where TCU's at. Number five, I have Miami. And I realize that is based almost entirely on the Texas A&M game. The Miami of Ohio win was nice. But based on this game against Texas A&M, where we know they have talent, where we've seen those same players get pressure on quarterbacks, and then Miami's new-look offensive line keeping them from getting pressure on Tyler Van Dyke, it helps to have that context. And so you feel like you can say that Miami is, is genuinely better. Now, we need to see this happen a few more times. And that's the tricky part with all these, because... For the most part, they've won one game against a really good opponent, but they haven't played anybody else thus far. 
that's that's going to challenge them. So it's hard to tell. Number four, I've got Duke. Say what you will about Clemson. Say what you will about Dabo Sweeney and the, the situation that he finds himself in, not being willing to use the transfer portal and the roster not looking like it used to. But that's still a roster full of blue chip recruits. That's still a roster with a bunch of NFL players on it. And Mike Elko's Duke team manhandled Clemson, manhandled them. So I'm going to put them here for now. Are they going to stay here? No, probably not. Notre Dame's coming to town in a few weeks. You know, if they if they beat them, then sure. But for now, Duke is looking very good. Number three, speaking of teams that, that played in the research triangle over the weekend, and speaking of Notre Dame, Notre Dame. The Fighting Irish went into NC State. Game delayed almost three hours because of lightning, after, basically after the first quarter, and then came out and just put the gas pedal down. Audrey Estime, an 80-yard touchdown run right off the bat, and then you saw them forcing turnovers and then turning those turnovers into points. And so Notre Dame looks great so far. Three wins for Notre Dame, but Navy and Tennessee State, again, didn't really tell us anything. But NC State, I feel like that did tell us something. So putting them there. Number two, Florida State. Obviously, that win against LSU, one of the best wins in the country so far this season. We know LSU has a talented roster. This is a similar team to the one that won the SEC West last year. We don't know how good it will be ultimately, but I got a feeling this win will still look good no matter what. And then Florida State against Southern Miss did the thing that you want to see a team that is supposed to be making the next step that is moving forward in its evolution do, and that is annihilate the overmatched opponent. You, you've seen some teams play with their food over the first couple of weeks. Florida State didn't do that with Southern Miss. I'm sure you've seen the photo of Keon Coleman hurtling the, the defender. I, although you probably should have learned not to hurdle Keon watching your own defense play against LSU and poor Jaden Daniels got, so, just got planted in the ground. But that, that was the highlight of a, a game where Florida State played a ton of players, played a lot of young players, and just looked great in general. Number one. Now this one's interesting. Because the team that was supposed to be the cream puff that they beat in the first game actually helped them out by doing something in week two while this team I'm talking about was going you know, on the road and, and getting probably the biggest win of the season so far. Number one is Texas. The Longhorns went into Tuscaloosa and beat Alabama. They looked better on both lines of scrimmage than Alabama, which says they would be better on both lines of scrimmage than Alabama probably what 95% of the teams in the country, 99% of the teams in the country. And so that was incredibly impressive. Also helping Texas's case, Rice beating Houston in double overtime. You know, Texas played Rice that first week. That was supposed to be a an easy win for Texas and it it was after eh, after halftime basically. But Rice then turning around and beating a Big 12 team, even though Houston hasn't actually played a Big 12 game yet, that just adds to Texas's resume. That helps. So right now, Texas number one, and I know what you're saying, Andy. You're overhyping Texas again. You guys do this all the time. But they did just go on the road and beat Alabama. Can we be forgiven this once? Is that okay? 
Do I think Texas is going to be the number one team in the country? Are they going to win the national title? I don't necessarily think so, but I think they can compete for it. I think they can compete for a playoff berth. What we saw in the line of scrimmage on Saturday works anywhere, works against anybody. The question for Texas is, can they win the games they're supposed to win? Can they be that hyped up, excited when they have to play pretty good Big 12 teams that can beat them on the right day? That's the tricky part. That's what Texas has to overcome. But I thought they were very well prepared for Alabama. There's a good chance they'll be prepared the rest of the way. So this is going to be fun to watch because Texas now has all these expectations they will be told how great they are. You know, in, in the past few years, Texas players have, have been told how great they are until the season starts, and then they're told how bad they are. They're not getting that now. They are getting told, you are awesome, you're the best thing since sliced bread, and now they have to learn to deal with that too. Let us move on, and yes, it's another Dion question, but a slightly different one, and it, it, it kind of speaks to how people misunderstand what's going on with Colorado. So this is from Joe. Andy, can you compare the head coaches of the Colorado and Colorado State game? Both promised a high-octane offense, but approached their rebuilds differently. An interesting story there between Jay Norvell's experience slash coaching tree lineage and his slow build and Prime's rise and quick roster turnover and success. So here's the thing, Joe. That's not what happened. They actually took a very similar approach. So Jay Norvell brought 11 players from Nevada to Colorado State when he got that job. Dion brought nine from Jackson State to Colorado. So Norvell was trying to flip the roster too. Now Nor Norvell's an air raid guy. His quarterback's coach is Matt Mummy, who's the, the son of Hal Mummy, who was one of the inventors of the air raid with Mike Leach. They should be better. But in 2022, Colorado State was three and nine and never scored more than 19 points in a game. So th that offense has not worked out. And really, it's probably the difference in luggage. Dion said he was bringing Louis luggage and he brought Louis luggage. Shadur Sanders has been incredible. Travis Hunter has been incredible. There is no player on Colorado State's roster that comes close to either one of those two. Not even close. Like Dion brought NFL players to Colorado. Jay Norvell didn't really bring NFL players to Colorado State. And as far as the staff goes, Dion brought a better staff. Like Freddie Banks was the defensive coordinator. He was hired from Montana State. And, and Colorado State was, was pretty good on defense last year. It, it, there are a couple games where, where they didn't, didn't get it done, but a lot of it was the offense also putting the defense in bad spots. So... Dion, he wanted a high-octane offense. He went out and got Sean Lewis. Sean Lewis has been a very good offensive coordinator, offensive mind, offensive play caller throughout his career. You know, when Syracuse had that really good year a few years ago, Sean Lewis was the offensive coordinator. And then when he left, they haven't had anything like that since. At Kent State, you maybe couldn't see it because they had to play these horrific non-conference schedules where like last year they played at Washington, at Oklahoma, and at Georgia. They got beaten down before they go play in the MAC. So you didn't really get a chance to see what he could do with a fully engaged, 
fully operational roster for an entire season. But you knew he he knew what he was doing. And I think that's that's the thing that Dion isn't getting enough credit for is building this staff and finding people who could really make the best of what they have on this Colorado roster. I think, you know, the, the TCU game is a prime example, but also the, the Nebraska game. I don't know that Colorado's offensive line is going to be one of the best in the country. I think I'm putting that pretty generous, generously. But Colorado's skill talent is incredible. And Sean Lewis has designed a scheme where Shador Sanders gets the ball, he gets it out very quickly and very decisively, and he has a buffet of playmaking options to get it to. And But the, because of the scheme, he's able to get it out there in one and a half, two seconds. He doesn't have to sit back there and wait for somebody to pop open. So that's really important. And that's a big difference. So I think comparing these, like Dion, everybody's assuming Dion did something that was completely different and nobody had ever thought of it. No, no, no. A lot of coaches over the past two years have flipped rosters. Jane Orville didn't really have a choice. That The, the roster had a lot of people leave after Steve Adazio's firing and, and kind of in the last year of Steve Adazio. So he didn't have a choice. He had to flip it. You've seen Lincoln Riley flip his roster at USC with good results. You saw Kenny Dillingham do it at Arizona State this past offseason. You saw, we, we talked to GJ Kenny last week. He had to do it at Texas State. So what Dion did is the most drastic version of that, but it's not as different as people think. And I think that's the, that's the part that people miss. And, and we're trying to look at Dion as, as a highly unconventional coach. He's highly unconventional in that he says what's on his mind. He's not boring. But in a lot of ways, he is a very conventional head coach in terms of organization, in terms of motivation. He's not doing anything different than what all of the coaches want to do at practice, in meetings. You know, this is a pretty disciplined team so far. That's what every coach aspires to be. You, you, you think if it's somebody who's just in it for the attention or trying to shake up the system, that they wouldn't get the little things right. But so far, they are getting the little things right. I think that's, that's the part that, that people aren't understanding. Dion did this in the most drastic roster flip way, but all of the other stuff has been pretty conventional. And, you know, Jay Norvell had the same idea. He moved within conferences. He didn't move from FCS to Power 5, but it hasn't had the same results. And it just see how special what Colorado is pulling off is. All right, one more Dion question. I swear that's it, but this was this was a really good one. So Jake from Fort Worth, sports are a copycat league, and I challenge you to come up with the most comical hypothetical scenario where a program thinks they can copy the Colorado Dion model. For example, let me set the scene. The year is 2028. Arizona State head coach Rob Gronkowski is 0-11 in the Big 32 Conference. P.S. There are also not excellent non-barbecue restaurants in the South you need to try. Make sure you check off the old South Pancake House and Kirby Lane off your list. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've lived in the South my entire life, so I, I am aware that there are non-barbecue restaurants. But this is a great hypothetical. And I do appreciate that he put Gronk at Arizona State and not his alma mater, Arizona, because Colorado is not obviously not where Deion Sanders went to school. 
So the question is how how do we do this? What what are we have? What are we going to have? Who are we putting where? So Deion Sanders, maybe the best corner of all time. That's why you go with Gronk, who's maybe the best tight end of all time. I think that would be a, a good way to do it. So we, we got to figure out, you know, who's the best ever, who's currently alive at, at a certain position group. And like, you know, who, who do you bring? I, I would love to see like Trent Williams retires from the San Francisco 49ers. I, I don't know if he's the best offensive tackle ever, but he's the best in the NFL right now. And one of the best ever he's an Oklahoma grad. So we can't put him there. We got to put him somewhere else. Do we put him at Iowa and he just recruits the greatest offensive lines of all time. And it is, it is the dream of Kirk and Brian Ferentz that they've ne- that they've never really been able to achieve that you, you have this program that is just elite offensive linemen year after year after year. And they run formations where they're playing six and seven offensive linemen at a time. They do throw the ball, but it's all set up by the run. I would love that. We got to find a quarterback, you know, who, which, which quarter Peyton Manning. I know when, when Tennessee's job kept repeatedly opening, people say, what about Peyton Manning? What about Peyton? I don't think Peyton would do it. I, one of the, one of the things that is unique about Dion that I also think people overlook is it is really hard to be a college head coach. It is really time consuming. It is a grind. You have to work a certain way. Most people, not just most ex-players, most people in general have no desire to work that way. But Dion does. He wants to be a successful coach. He does work that way. So who else would, would be able to do that? Now, I think Peyton Manning is a person who will work hard and grind, but perhaps he's already found his other great talent. He's a great media executive. That, that Omaha Productions puts together cool stuff and they keep coming up with good new ideas. And so, I mean, maybe Peyton's got that. The, the one that would be fun, and I just don't think he would do it because I think, I think he knows better. But I've heard his name get thrown out by fans when his alma mater has struggled at times. And that is Tim Tebow. Because Tim Tebow is like Dion in that everything he says and does moves the meter. We are really interested in what Deion Sanders does. We are really interested in whatever it is that Tim Tebow does. We have an opinion on whatever it is they do. So if you put Tim Tebow at a power five school, I think you would get massive interest. But the thing is, again, like with Dion, you have to keep winning. You have to keep producing good content. Dion seems to be a, a never ending fountain of good content. So would Tebow be able to do that? Because in, in the question, Gronk isn't winning. And I, I'm not sure Tebow would come in and win because, again, you have to want to work like this. You have to want to do this. And Tim has been doing television. He's been doing motivational speeches. Now, we know he likes to work hard. I mean, this is a guy who worked very hard as a football player, then decided, hey, I've always wanted to try to play baseball. He actually made himself a fairly competent minor league baseball player, which is not easy to do. It requires a lot of work. So I don't doubt his capacity for work. 
I just don't know if he'd want to put himself through it. That's the hardest part. I, you, you've got to, you've got to be willing to put yourself through the grind of being a head coach. I think that's one thing that makes Dion so special. When are we ever going to see again someone who is a top one, two, three person at their position in football, Hall of Famer type? When are we ever going to see somebody willing to do all of the work that's required to be a really good college head coach? It is not likely that we're going to see anybody else like that. We've seen people who were good players in college and even great players in college come back and be a good coach. Steve Spurrier is a great example. Heisman Trophy winner. But he was in the NFL, but he wasn't a great in the NFL like Dion was. You know, Dion, because he made so much money in the NFL, that this all has to be intrinsic motivation. It's certainly not financially motivated. He doesn't have to do this. He just wants to. And I got to say, human nature says there's just not going to be many people of that ilk who just want to do this. So I don't think we're going to see anything like that. But I, I, the Tebow, where will we put Tebow? What school would, would we want to put Tebow at? We put him at Clemson? You're going to have him replace Dabo? That would be something. We could do the Oprah, you know, the Oprah Umar at the Oscars thing. Oprah Uma, Dabo Tebow, Dabo Tebow. I would love to see that. That would be hilarious. But I think it probably would end pretty badly. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't, I just don't know. I, did, I wouldn't have guessed this with Deion Sanders watching him on TV through the years. Uh, I guess if I'd, I'd been following his career as a youth football coach in the Dallas area or, you know, as he worked with his sons growing up, maybe, maybe I would have understood better where this is coming from, but yeah, I, I I'm hard pressed to think of anybody who will come along and, and do this, but it is, it is definitely a fascinating topic. And Rob Gronkowski, Arizona state head coach. Well, I tell you what, that is, that's just gold right there. Just gold. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. question from at Georgia is a verb on Twitter. Will Jimbo be an analyst on Fox or ESPN? Ouch. We're just assuming that Texas A&M is going to pay $76 million to buy the man out. I realize that Texas A&M has a lot of money, but this is a, this is a hard leap to make after that game. And, and part of it is because they, they, they played well on the side of the ball that they struggled on last year, is I, I have this kind of hope in the back of my head that they'll get it figured out at Texas A&M. Because especially now that Texas seems to have things figured out, I feel bad for Texas A&M fans. They have, they have waited and waited and waited. And they seemingly have all of the right elements to have a team that is nationally competitive year after year after year. And for whatever reason, they can never seem to put it all together. 
Now, it could just be that Miami's really good this year and Mario Cristobal's performed the ultimate flip. But what we saw with the lack of pressure, the poor tackling, I don't know that that, that necessarily can all be attributed to Miami being better. And A&M is going to play some, some very good teams down the stretch that can take advantage of that. And I'm not just talking about LSU and Alabama. I'm also... I mean, Ole Miss can take advantage of that. Our, Arkansas is going to be able to take advantage of that. It's going to be tough sledding if that's the defense they're going to play, even if the offense is working. And that's the part I imagine is so frustrating for Texas A&M fans because they spent all last season watching an offense that felt like it was stuck in mud. And now suddenly they have an offense that looks smooth. That Connor Wegman looks absolutely fantastic at quarterback. But – soon as you get that fixed, something else breaks. And that is incredibly frustrating. So if I were sitting on top of a pile of cash and about to get more money from the SEC TV deal, maybe I do. Maybe I do. Now, Jimbo as a TV analyst would be really interesting. I'll, I'll go back to a conversation I had. For those who don't know, at big game press conferences, a lot of times for the the New Year's Six type games or college football playoff type games, they bring in a, a company called ASAP Sports and they hire professional transcriptionists to transcribe the coaches as they are speaking. And so these people type really fast. And I remember meeting one of the transcriptionists at a, an NCAA tournament basketball game and uh, we rode a shuttle bus back to the parking lot together. And I was asking her, just peppering her with questions about how the coaches talk and keeping up with them. Cause as someone, as a writer who had to transcribe quotes, it was incredibly frustrating for me trying to keep up with these guys. And so she, this time at the time, Jimbo Fisher's coaching Florida state, uh, urban Meyer just left Florida and she was based in Florida. So she mostly did the, the games involving the Florida teams. And so Jimbo Fisher, she said, he just speaks so fast. I can't even keep up with him and I'm supposed to be the fastest typer there is. And so I, that's the question. And, and having interviewed Jimbo Fisher multiple times, especially in the, in the situation where you're on a live show, he talks so fast that he gets the same amount of answer in 15 seconds that a normal person gives you in 30 seconds. So you put him on a studio set, and everybody else is going to have to adjust their internal clocks because you're going to throw to him, expecting him to go for about a 30-second chunk. He'll go 15, but say all the same amount of words you would have said in 30. It would really mess everybody up. So it would be fascinating to watch, but I don't know if, I don't know if that's in his future. I don't know if, if television is definitely Jimbo Fisher's future. He hopes his future is Texas A&M and winning lots of games. I'm not completely given up on him yet. I, I don't think it's over for them. I think the fact that the, the offense is working so well suggests that maybe it can get fixed. There's talent on defense. It's not like they have bad players. So I'm not giving up on them yet. And if, I, if, if it does happen, though, maybe not TV, but... He'll have plenty of, of cash. He can do whatever he wants. Next question comes from Christopher in Naples, Florida. Scenario time. Iowa wins the Big Ten West at 10-2, and two, but scores 280 points in the process. 
What happens? Is Brian Ferentz fired after championship season? If so, does Kirk Ferentz resign or retire? Okay. The drive for 325 is an all-consuming thing. I, again, I think it was brilliant for Iowa to put that in Brian Ferentz's contract that he has to average 25 points a game, or Iowa has to average 25 points a game. Remember, Phil Parker's defense can also contribute. But I do think it was brilliant that they put that in the contract because we got to watch every Iowa game now. Every second of every Iowa game, every point matters. Currently, they are off the pace. <laughs> they're, they're six points off the pace for the drive for 325. They scored 20 against Iowa State. They scored 24 against Utah State. So they need six more. So they need to score 31 to catch up, to keep pace. But let's let's talk about Christopher's scenario. What if they score 280, but they're 10 and 2? Guess what? Brian Ferris is going to keep his job. Because at the end of the day, the point's to win ball games. Whatever it is they're doing would be winning them ball games. Now, the question is, did the two you lose, did you lose them because your offense was not confident enough? Or did you lose them because your defense just couldn't keep up? Or I think that's that's probably the, the bigger question to, to answer this. Because if you find a formula that wins you 10 games a year in today's college football, and you're not Georgia, Ohio State, Alabama, a program that expects to, to compete for national titles every year, I don't know that you change anything. I don't know that you do that. Even, even if it's frustrating to watch... 10 wins is 10 wins. So I don't know that Kirk would do anything. I would say Kirk probably would feel like he found a magic formula. Now that magic formula also involves Phil Parker still being the defensive coordinator and LeVar Woods being the, the special teams coach, but it would be a fairly good formula. And if you're an Iowa fan, I, I realize you'd be frustrated, but if you're winning 10 games a year, would you want to make that change? Would you be willing to risk the performance going down part and part of it is that Kirk Ferentz's overall governing philosophy is when you get a lead, when your defense is playing well, just take it easy, be conservative and don't try anything. that's going to going to make a mistake and, and cause the other team to get back into the game. So a lot of it is Brian has to do what Kirk says offensively. And when the defense is playing well, Brian is not going to have the, the chains taken off. Brian's going to have to call plays in the way that Kirk wants him to call plays. So it's not all on Brian Ferentz either. But in that scenario, if you're, if you're winning 10 games, they ain't firing him. And, and again, why would you? <laughs> you're winning 10 games. It would be crazy. But I don't know. It's, it is... It is amazing to watch, and I will watch every game because can they get the 325? I still think they probably can. I, a healthy Cade McNamara might make the difference, but we'll see. One more question. This is from Vomo Panther. A lot of talk is about how Wisconsin hiring Luke Fickle for a divisionless Big Ten. With the Mel Tucker situation, how is Michigan State going to prepare with a new coach and staff? Could Michigan State consider getting Phil Parker or LeVar Woods from the Iowa staff? Oh, we just mentioned them. So, I don't know. Does Phil Parker want to be a head coach? Because I would think he would have already been one by now. He's been an elite defensive coordinator for a long, long time. LeVar Woods, I'm just looking at that as he's probably Iowa's next head coach when Kirk Ferentz gets done. So, I don't know that I would want to leave. Although, 
if I'm Michigan State, I do make inquiries. Would you possibly be interested? You know who else I'd make inquiries to? Sharon Moore. Because if Jim Harbaugh is going to stay at Michigan, why not pull the double whammy? Take take the guy who feels like one of the biggest rising stars in, in college football and take something really important away from your one of your rivals. I, but the question is, who would you go for? Who, like, what, what type of coach do you want at Michigan State? You know, I think their, their idea with Tucker and the vision that he sold them was, I am going to recruit like my former bosses did at Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State. And he got those players to come look at East Lansing, but it was a struggle to get them to sign. And I think what you have at Wisconsin is Luke Fickle trying to do the same thing, though his hit rate at Cincinnati quite a bit better where he got guys that would not normally consider Cincinnati to sign with Cincinnati and then develop them. So I, I suspect that Luke Fickle is going to be able to do that at Wisconsin. The question is, if you're Michigan State, do you try that again or do you go a little bit different route? Now, I will say, I don't think the Mark D'Antonio out-evaluate, develop, 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 is going to win the Big Ten going forward. It was great when Urban Meyer either hadn't gotten to Ohio State or was about to get there, when Michigan was down, when Wisconsin was the, the, the only other team you needed to worry about with Brett Bielema. I don't think that's the case anymore. This new Big Ten, Ohio State is still raking in top talent. Michigan is as good as it's been in a long, long time. Penn State has some elite talent and seems to be capable of acquiring more. I mentioned Fickle at Wisconsin. USC's coming in. They're going to be able to recruit great players. Oregon is going to be able to recruit great players. Washington is always going to be a solidly built team. You've got to figure out what you want in that coach. So do you go rising star who you think can possibly recruit and develop players at that championship level where you're, you're getting highly rated recruits and then developing them, which is what Michigan does now, which is what Ohio state does, Georgia, Alabama, those types. So that would be, you probably try to attack the schools that do it, the assistants at the schools that do that. So, so a Sharon Moore, a Brian Hartline at Ohio state. You know, do, do you do it like that? Do you, you go for maybe an Alex Atkins at Florida State? He, he's going to be a name that gets mentioned for a lot of head coaching openings once this season ends because he's the offensive coordinator at Florida State, though Mike Norvell is the play caller. But Alex has been a play calling OC before at Charlotte. He also is the guy who resurrected Florida State's offensive line. And if you followed Florida State over the last few years, you know that them having a capable offensive line is nothing short of a miracle, given what Alex Atkins inherited. So he's going to be one, but do you, is, is that the type of, of coach you're looking for? Or do you go the guy who's been a head coach at a bunch of different places and wins everywhere has proven they just win. So that's your Lance Leipold at Kansas, your Willie Fritz at Tulane, your Dave Clawson at Wake Forest. Is that, is that the type of coach you go for? Clawson turned him down last time. So I don't know if, if he'd be interested again, but the, the money might make anybody at least take a look. You know, I mentioned Clawson when Northwestern opened. I still think that's 
a potential possibility if Northwestern's administration flips over, but this is a better job football wise. Uh, Willie Fritz, you know, you age, you're going to look at that, but I mean, they play really well. They play really hard. They, you know, they, they're playing with a backup quarterback and hang with Ole Miss. If you look at the budgets of those two programs, Tulane shouldn't be anywhere near that game competitive in that game. So, I'll throw another one in there. Jamie Chadwell at Liberty has also won at a bunch of different levels. The, the questions for him are always, oh, well, you've never been a power five assistant because he's always been a head coach at a lower level. Can you recruit at this level? And he's not going to be able to answer that until somebody hires him. Another name that I mentioned earlier in the show is one that, that I think is probably going to get a lot of attention if things keep going the way they're going. And that's Sean Lewis, the, the offensive coordinator, of Colorado. You know, he was the head coach at Kent State. And I think when he took the Kent State job, being a head coach in the MAC was viewed as a, a good stepping stone into the Power Five. But now I think Power Five coordinator is an easier path to a big Power Five head coaching job as opposed to a group of five head coaching jobs. So if Lewis is, is producing great offenses at Colorado, then I think he's going to get looks from power five schools as a head coach. And, and after this year, because everybody's looking for something like that. And if you go back into Sean Lewis's Kent state history, he was a capable coach there. Again, the out of conference scheduling for them just hamstrung him every single year. I think if people pop the hood on that, they're going to say, you know what, this guy could be very successful as a power five head coach. And now we've seen him do this offensively with Colorado. We're going to put him on our list. So for Michigan state, it really depends on what you want. And, you know, given what we've seen from this administration, I don't know if they know what they want. yet. They got to, they've got to figure out the Mel Tucker stuff first and then move on to that next part of it. But it, it really will come down to what, what do they want? Because they'll have the money to pay. I'm assuming they're, they're firing Mel Tucker with cause. They'll have a lot of money to pay somebody. They'll have some choices. And it may be somebody I didn't even mention because they'll look at the dollar figure and go, Oh, Okay. I'd like to try that. We'll find out. Today's extra point focuses on a guy who could not be at a football game on Saturday, though he found a way to a football game anyway, and that is Jim Harbaugh. Serving game number two of the university imposed three game suspension for cheeseburger gate. The Michigan coach worked the chain gang at his son's game Saturday morning. And then he was asked what he did beyond that on Saturday. Well, Here's what he said. Well, um, actually, pretty nice little Saturday. We're uh, we're gonna go to Home Depot. Yeah, buy some wallpaper, maybe get some flooring, stuff like that. Maybe Bed Bath and Beyond. I don't know. I don't know if we'll have enough time. I always re remember that scene as having the Olive Garden reference in it too, but that's a very different scene in old school, and we won't conflate that with with Jim Harbaugh. But Jim Harbaugh, in his press conference. He did list some of the other things he did. Uh, it was good. You know, it's like you go to the, the games and you got to ask the parents to, to do something, do some kind of job. Last week was a Friday game and uh, we were responsible for the Gatorade and, the, and some of the snacks. And this week they needed somebody on the chains. So uh, uh, it was good. Got to get right close to the field and, and, and watch the game. And it was a, our, our team needed a win uh, and they played. They played really well. Uh, we got a we got a young star in Evan Kaji, uh, number twenty four. 
Uh, and, and my son Jack played played good. It's just they do a great job being our Saints, coaching. Fun to watch. Uh, fun to watch the practices. They do a really good good job training the guys. And uh, we lost a couple close ones. And uh, this week we we broke through with a with a big win. So it was it was, it was neat to see the you know the kids' um, enthusiasm for that and, and confidence as uh, as they left the field and. Makes them want to come back. Makes them like football. You know, it was uh, it was cool to be a part of. And how, how did you watch the Michigan game on Saturday? Once at home, Johnny, my six-year-old, and Katie, my twelve-year-old, and I, we uh, watched the game from the from the TV. Got the front lawn cut pre-game, <laughs> and then I uh, got the back lawn cut after the game was over. So, uh, good good productive day. Any it's sandwiches? Good. Uh. I think we forgot to eat. I forgot to feed them. <laughs> oh, no, we did at halftime. We went to McDonald's. <laughs> halftime, we uh, went to McDonald's on Washington. That, Jim Harbaugh, is a nice little Saturday. Congratulations to you. One more to go. Sharon Moore, your interim coach for this week's game against Bowling Green. No interim here. I don't. I don't get to be suspended. No, no self-imposed university imposed companies imposed suspensions for me. I will be back tomorrow. We will get you ready for the biggest games of the week, including Tennessee headed down to Gainesville to try to win there for the first time in 20 years. Talk to you tomorrow. Madness is here. Say goodbye to busted brackets because FanDuel lets you bet on every game of the tournament. Whether you're betting on a big upset or a one seed, it's time to go dancing on America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first $5 bet wins on FanDuel. That's 200 bucks to use on point spreads, money lines. You can even pick who's going to win it all. Just visit FanDuel.com slash on three and bet on college hoops until they cut down the nets. Must be 21 and older in present in select states. First online real money wager only $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. Com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1-800-GAMBLER.NET in West Virginia or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE. NY or text HOPE NY in New York.